All right. Good morning, friends. If you are uh, out in the foyer, I'm going to invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take your seats as we continue with our time together this morning. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And uh, this morning, as we continue in our teaching series, you're going to get a little insight into Jericho Ridge's origin story and history. Uh, at Easter this year, Jericho Ridge will be 14 years old, launched Easter Sunday in 2005. And Jericho was launched as a satellite campus church plant of North Langley Community Church up in Walnut Grove. Uh, I was on staff in Walnut Grove at uh, North Langley from 1999 until 2005. And uh, the, the real heart and the vision was a group of people at North Langley uh, asked and prayed and said, God, how can we most effectively reach growing neighborhood in Clayton and in Willoughby? And that really was the genesis of, uh, of Jericho Ridge. We started meeting in uh, Ari Mountain Secondary School, and then we moved across to the event center. And uh, then after last year, our brief time sojourn at Port Kells, this has become uh, our home. And, but really, we, we share that DNA. We share uh, a lot of similarities with North Langley Community Church because really they were the ones that uh, were our mother church. And so as we've gone through this series, one of the things that we want to do is we want to introduce you to some of the relationships that we have as a community. So last week you got introduced to some of our camping ministries and Rachel and Camp Bob over on Vancouver Island. And this morning we want to introduce you to uh, really the people who were part of uh, giving Jericho its genesis. And so Rob is our conference minister. Rob, do you want to just wave? Rob was the lead pastor at uh, North Langley Community Church at that time. And I uh, just had a privilege to be mentored by Rob for a number of years. And uh, then Janet was on staff as well. And so Janet Teeson's going to come and share this morning. Uh, Janet and I, when we were on staff together at North Langley, um, we think a lot alike about a number of different things, so we would always go into the staff meetings and, and with great ideas for the rest of the staff, and we would all try and get them on board and excited about all of these types of ideas that Janet and I had for all of their lives. Um, and so it was a wonderful privilege to serve alongside of Janet. Janet's currently serving as the executive pastor at NLCC uh, and has a, um, a wonderful family, and we love and know them well, grandkids, uh, many of whom live locally and and so Janet's going uh, to share as we move into our second Sunday of our Hidden Figures series. So let me pray for you, Janet, as we look into God's word this morning. God, you are kind and gracious and good. You are faithful in all of your ways. You have been faithful to North Langley as a church here in our city for many years. You've provided faithful leadership. You've been faithful to Jericho. And we thank you for that, God. We honor you for that. You are Lord of your church. You are building your church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, God, as we uh, desire to see your kingdom come and your will be done here in this place as it is in heaven, we pray you'd open our ears to hear the Holy Spirit things that you would have us to hear in this place today through Janet. We pray you'd open our eyes to see things in your word and in our own lives that you want us to pay attention to. And God, grant us obedient spirits to act, not just be ones that listen to your words, but ones who do 
things that you call and invite us to do in walking in faithful obedience. And so I thank you for Janet, how she's modeled walking in faithful obedience as a disciple of yours for many years. And we ask now uh, that you would open your word to us through her. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks, Janet. Welcome here. Thanks, Brad. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's so good to be here. And um, it's great to see some familiar faces out there. I don't want to say they're the old faces, but um, the Ashes and the Cottrells and the Teesons and, of course, Brad and Meg and, um, yeah, some of you I know. But this is my first opportunity to actually be in this building, like, ever. And um, so walking in the doors and seeing this space and this place, I'm just like... Man, I'm on cloud nine. I love seeing uh, opportunity, and I love seeing um, new things happening, and I love seeing potential uh, where God just takes a group of people and gives them a dream and a vision. And I, I just believe that this place is just so perfectly located right here in, in Willoughby. Um, just yesterday, I was... Um, driving my daughter around because she got her wallet stolen with all of her identification, so she couldn't drive herself. And part of that was driving her to the DMV, which I found out moved right there by the, you know, driving around, where's the DMV? And then um, um, I waited in the car for her, or actually I went shopping at Superstore while I waited for her because it was a long line. And she comes out and she was like, mom, like, well, like, I wouldn't have known, I, I wouldn't have guessed I was in Langley. She goes, that was a cross-cultural experience. There were people from every nation in the DMV. It was packed. It was so diverse. She said, that was a huge wake-up call for me, just to be, spend, she like, spend an hour in the DMV, or an hour and a half. And, um, and I thought, yeah. And then I thought about, I thought about Jericho Ridge, and I just thought, Wow, the opportunity. Am I, am I ringing a little bit or am I okay? Is there anything I should be doing? Stop talking. Here, whoops, sorry. Let me just make sure this is on correctly so that I don't ring for the rest of the service for you. Okay, is that all right? Yeah. So I, I'm just thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to walk in these doors and see um, all of you and to see what it looks like to have the church gathered in this place. It's awesome. So... Brad um, sort of uh, talked about our family a little bit. I'll just throw a slide up there in case any of you are curious. I was talking to Debbie Ash, and she said, how are Marcus and Abby? Because they used to babysit her son. We lived uh, really close together in Walnut Grove. And um, so there's the family. I won't even begin to identify everyone. Um, we have five grandchildren now. There's only four on that slide, so that shows you how great I am at getting family pictures done. But, um, but that's us, and uh, yeah, we have such a close connection with Jericho Ridge just because we were planted together um, out, you know, out of North Langley, and actually, I think it was Meg that I met first. We taught Sunday school together. I don't even remember what grade, Meg, but every Sunday we were in the basement with a, in a room with a bunch of little kids, and I think you were just engaged at the time to Brad, and um, so that's how we got to know each other, and, and we served together for many years, and um, I, I had Meg on speed dial, actually, because uh, she's a person of wisdom, and as we walked together in leadership, um, Meg and I had a real close relationship in that way, so I appreciate them both so much. 
Well, I love, I love, love, love this uh, series that you're in called Hidden Figures. It's amazing. And um, of course, when Brad told me, I'm like, oh man, I love that movie. That movie is so awesome. Um, it's one of my all-time favorites. Um, and yet, I was in a coffee shop just on Wednesday with a coworker. And she was asking me about this, you know, what I was preaching on in the series. And I told her hidden figures in that movie. She goes, oh, I fell asleep in that movie. I was, I was like, I can't believe how outraged I was. I'm like, you fell asleep in hidden figures? How could you? And I realized I was coming across a little strong. So I offered, like, let's, maybe we should rewatch that together. And um, she said, okay. So, um, but here in this movie, you know, you have these three unlikely ostracized African-American women who are outsiders, but they're actually brought in alongside these important, you know, scientists at NASA for a really important assignment, uh, uh, you know, to achieve this historical event, which was sending a man into orbit in outer space. And I thought, how perfect. Uh, that this is the title for this series that you're doing here. Because last week, you began to look at the hidden figures in Jesus' genealogy, right? In Matthew 1. And here we see actually four marginalized, non-Jewish outsiders who are brought in and, and included alongside really famous biblical heroes to help bring about the greatest event in human history, and that's the salvation of mankind. Like this is so cool to see the, to, you know, to see the, the parallelism in these two stories. But as I looked at Matthew 1 and, and this series, I thought, why are these women included? That's a really good question to start with. Why are these women included? Why are their stories so important? Last week, you heard about Tamar, if you were here. I actually wasn't here, so I listened online. And I heard about Tamar from Genesis 38. She had this tenacious sense of righteousness. And it literally, that tenacity literally rescued Judah's line, Judah's, Judah's lineage, right? So that when we read in scripture or we sing a worship song that says, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, we have a different perspective. We know that this outcast uh, foreign girl was brought in to the family of Judah for a very important purpose. And so I hope that even today, as we look at our next figure, that we'll be able to reframe uh, God's history um, uh, through, the, through the Jewish people and see how he brought people in for very specific purposes and they were included um, not just as an afterthought, not just as a tag, tag on, oh, he was married to her, but as a very integral part of God's salvation plan. So I hope that you see that today. Matthew's genealogy is amazing. It's amazing what he records. But, you know, obviously genealogies are really uh, quite popular nowadays, aren't they, right? Can't you do like you can spit in something and send it off and figure out your genealogy, right? That's really, really popular. People are doing that. They're obsessed with genealogies. You know, many families, they spend their holidays trying to avoid each other. And then they spend the rest of their time trying to hunt each other down. It's weird, you know. Um, even like last summer, I was in uh, Pennsylvania where I grew up. And my dad is like 
drawing and, and obsessed with our family tree. And you gotta know my dad, like he doesn't even like people. We never, we never grew up around aunts and uncles and cousins, and yet he's obsessed with his genealogy business. And it's a big deal, like it's a billion, billion dollar, you know, obsession that people have. I hear it's only second um, in, you know, hobbies to gardening. I mean, that's as it should be, because gardening is awesome, if you know me. <laughs> You're laughing if you know me, because I'm an obsessive gardener. But genealogies were everything to Israel. Um, those who could not prove their ancestry in Israel were outsiders. Genealogies were very important. They documented actual history. They documented real people, whether they were imperfect or not. And Matthew's genealogy is critical because it shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the prophets spoke and told about. That's why this genealogy is included. It's a fulfillment of the whole Old Testament culminating in the birth of Jesus. But it is still, and as you are well aware, it's very, very unusual to have women included in any genealogy. Genealogies trace the male line. And so women, because they had no legal rights, no property rights, they were not included in genealogies. So you know why Tamar is included, but what about today's hidden figure? What about Rahab? Um, the title for our sermon today is Rahab, an uncommon and courageous confession. And we'll see why uh, we're going there, but you need to know that Rahab is found in the book of the Bible called Joshua. So after the first five books of the Bible, we come to the sixth book of the Bible, Joshua, and in Joshua 2, we find Rahab. Um, at this point, we're, we're, in, we're in the history of God's people, and at this point in that history, um, God's people, Israel, they've been rescued from slavery. Uh, maybe you're familiar with that story uh, under the leadership of Moses. But here in Joshua, in the beginning of the book, it's 40 years later. So they have wandered, the people of God have wandered in the wilderness because of their sin and rebellion against God. Moses has died. His predecessor Joshua is now commander-in-chief. And um, they are ready to enter the promised land. Joshua's in command. Now, just for geographical reasons, I don't know if you can see on the slide up there, it's kind of far away, sorry about that. But they're camped on the east side of the Jordan River. And they're preparing to obey God's command to move into the promised land, which means they have to cross the Jordan River to enter that promised land. Okay, so I'm going to read Joshua 2 for you. If you have your Bible, you can look there. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Um, and for those of you who maybe know this story from when you were a kid, or maybe you've read it lately, or maybe you don't know it at all, like, it's great to just listen to a story. So I'm going to read it for you. It'll take about three minutes or so. So let's just hear this story together. It starts in Joshua 2. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab. Bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. 
Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax that she had laid out. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. As soon as the king's men had left, the gates of Jericho were shut. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. We've heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all their families. We offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. If you don't betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then, since Rahab's house was built into the town wall, she let them down by a rope through the window. Escape to the hill country, she told them. Hide there for three days from the men searching for you. Then, when you've returned, you can go on your way. Before they left, the men told her, we will be bound by the oath we have taken only if you follow these instructions. When we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And all your family members, father, mother, brothers, relatives must be here inside the house. If they go into the street, they will be killed. It will not be our fault. But if anyone lays a hand on people inside this house, we will accept the responsibility for their death. If you betray us, however, we are not bound by this oath in any way. I accept your terms, she replied, and she sent them on their way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window. And then the spies go hide and come back a few days later, cross the Jordan and go to, go to Joshua and tell him everything they have seen and what has happened. Amazing story right here at the beginning of Joshua. And the story begins with two unnamed spies. Now, if you remember if, and have heard the story 40 years earlier, how many spies were sent into the land at that time? 12, yeah. 10 were bad, two were good, remember? The two good spies are actually Joshua and Caleb, the only men living at this time. And so we're introduced here, though, in, in, uh, by verse 1, we're introduced actually to the main character of the story. I mean, the spies aren't even named, but Rahab is. Rahab the prostitute. And some of the translations simply refer to her as Rahab the harlot. The name Rahab in ancient e uh, Hebrew means vast or wide and kind of hints at her profession. And we actually get the derogatory slang word for woman called broad from, from this descriptor. In an attempt to sanitize Rahab's reputation, however, you know, for children's Bible stories or phonograph or things like that, Rahab has often been referred to as an innkeeper. Well, <clears throat> just to be 
clear. There really wasn't even a concept of having an inn at that time. And if there were, even later on in history, they were only owned by men. But just, you know, just to be clear about that, the Hebrew word for prostitute or our harlot is Zora, and then when uh, Rahab is referred to in the New Testament, um, Rahab the uh, prostitute, the word porne is used. So there's no, um, you know, discussion about the fact that her reputation as a prostitute was clear. She is what she is. And artists, you know, over the years have definitely taken liberty to portray, portray her portray her as such and whether it's accurate or not um, this is a picture in the mid 1800s of a painting by Tissot and you see lots of this happening in the art world um, although sometimes she's portrayed she looks like a nun and other times a prostitute so people are just really across the board confused about this but she was a Canaanite a foreigner and the Canaanites were a depraved, uh, wicked, and really rebellious people group. Like, that, this would not have been a place where you would want to live in Jericho. It was a principal seat of really abhorrent practices of idolatry, primarily to uh, the moon goddess Ashtaroth. And um, her house, uh, scripture says, was built into the wall of Jericho. And excavations, even around the turn of the century, um, have uncovered the fact that Jericho did have a double wall going around it. And so this is a picture of what that might have looked like um, in an old wall, a double wall with a house built into it at the time. Now, God had commanded the Israelites to, to take the land, to move into the promised land. And God had commanded um, Joshua to utterly destroy the Canaanites and make no treaty with them. So it's interesting, just a few, uh, half a chapter in to hear the book of Joshua, you have the spies ignoring both commands. They're making a treaty with a prostitute named Rahab, and they are pledging not to destroy her and her whole family. So what are we to make of this? Well, the, the, this this telling of the story of Jericho and Rahab was placed here, recorded here by the writer of um, Joshua for the Hebrew nation, for retelling, for remembering, for speaking about the character of God and what he was like. What does this teach us about God, about his nature, about grace, about atonement? These are things we're going to look at. But as we look at Rahab's life today, I want us to just look at two major themes. The first one is the faith of Rahab. You've probably seen that already. And the second is the family of Rahab. But first, let me say this. We have to recognize that this text is far less interested in the descriptor prostitute or harlot than it is in far more interested in the faith of Rahab. Less interested in her uh, choice of career, her prostitution, and far more interested in her faith. Okay? Yet as I read and studied commentators and people who preached about Rahab, mostly men of course in this instance, there was this overwhelming focus on Rahab's sinfulness. Overwhelming. Like hands down. I began to see that. I was like, I mean some sermons were titled Rahab's rehab and the reformation of Rahab and I was just like what is that the point of the story 
Is the point of the story that a prostitute needs to get cleaned up to come to God? And I was like, man, these guys are missing it. Not that I saw it, but I saw it through other people's eyes as I kept reading and studying this. And no doubt that was part of Rahab's story as she was included in the family of God. But we have to be clear that the Rahab who acted in faith still owned a brothel. So Rahab is referenced, we see this referenced by Paul and James in the New Testament. And it's not for her sparkly reputation. Her faith is what helps her and makes her stand out in both occasions. She's included in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, that, you know, hero hall of fame of, uh, you know, people like Abraham and Joseph and Moses. And it says there, Paul writes, it was by faith. It was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed by the people in her city who refused to obey God. For she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So Rahab's faith, how was it demonstrated? What do we see here? I think right off the bat, we, the first thing we see is that she recognized the acts of God. She recognized the acts of God. See, word had been spreading. She, she tells the spies, word is spreading about the Israelites and their God. Now Jericho was situated quite near the Jordan River. In fact, from where the Israelites were camped to Jericho, it was like 13 miles. But the, they were camped down in a plain, you know, um, by, the, by the river. So from Jericho, they were able to see three million Israelites camped there by the river. No wonder their hearts were melting in fear, right? But mostly it was because they had heard the stories. They heard, and it had been passed down, you know, decade, that, that God had rescued the Israelites, that God had defeated the Egyptians, that they had crossed the Red Sea, that God had preserved them in the wilderness. This was not done in a corner somewhere. They knew, they heard about uh, what God had done, his miraculous acts, his power, his recent, uh, the, the Israelites' recent victories over the Amorites. And these were, these were large kingdoms and powerful kings. And the Israelites had defeated them. So she took notice. She sought the truth. Okay, she didn't dismiss the stories. She noticed that is a God that is very, very different from these gods that I've been brought up to know. And I want to know who that is. I will seek that God. And she saw him demonstrated God's power and presence. So she not only recognized the acts of God, but she recognized the supremacy of God. This is the first recorded Gentile confession of faith in scripture. Now, Gentile simply means like non-Jewish, right? The first recorded non-Jewish confession of faith in scripture. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. And when, Rah when Rahab confesses the supremacy of God, she's not here using a generic Canaanite term for God. Not at all. Instead, she was referring to God by his highest name, which is Yahweh in the Hebrew. Jehovah, some translations say. Or probably in your translation, if it's the NLT or the NIV, it uses the word Lord, but all capitals. Right? You see Lord capitalized. That, that means Yahweh. And that is the covenant name that the Hebrews used for their personal God. She's not referring to God as the gods like the idols that um, were worshipped in Jericho. She has seen his power and his presence and she believes. She believes that Yahweh is the one true God. And with her confession, 
we see that anyone, anyone, even the most questionable, can believe and be saved because God honors her confession of faith. It reminded me of the verse in Romans 10.10, 10, for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. That's Rahab's story. That's her confession. That's uncommon, courageous confession. Her whole story, her whole destiny rests on her confession. Don't you see? This is her rescue. It's a spiritual rescue. If she had never been rescued physically from the city of Jericho, she has been rescued because of her confession of faith based on the one true God. Now for you and I, it's no different, right? It's why we celebrate baptism. Um, a month or so ago at North Langley, we had baptism. And you know, there's a reason why when we take somebody who has just told their story about coming to know who Jesus is, and we ask them, you know, for, to, to state their confession that Jesus uh, lived, died, uh, rose again, I will follow him for the rest of my life. And then we dunk them under the water, and we bring them back up, and what happens? The whole church erupts in cheers. It's like the best thing ever. We are witnessing a person's rescue. We're witnessing their confession of faith. So if you have not experienced that in your own life, like talk to Brad or Wally. Like this is so important. It's our confession of faith that we are made right with God by declaring our faith in Jesus. And that's why baptism is so amazing. I love it. So this is what Rahab is doing. This is her faith. This is her, where she is putting her faith um, you know, into a spoken confession that I will stake my life on who Yahweh is, your God, your God. I want your God to be my God. But Rahab also chose sides and she put her faith into action. When, when the push came to shove, she put her faith into action. The faith of Rahab was demonstrated in action. James picks up on this in the New Testament. James says, Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid the messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Now Rahab, she was quick thinking. She was this resourceful single woman um, who not only believed in her heart that that Yahweh was supreme, but she took a risk and she put her faith to work. Now what set her apart from the rest of the um, inhabitants of Jericho? What set her apart? Was it that she was more morally correct? Well, no. Was it her reputation? Probably not. Was it her connections? Uh, I don't think so. It was her faith. And her faith wasn't measured by how much she knew. She probably knew very little about the God of the Israelites, about the one true God, Yahweh, but it was evidenced by her determination and her willingness to lay her life down on the line and say, I want to be with that community of faith. I want to be near those people who know the true God. And the sign of her faith, that, that evidence of her rescue, it's that scarlet rope that she hung out that window and she just said, I, I will stake my life on this. And I, and I wonder, I mean, um, you know, Scarlet was a very common dye at that time. And um, she was, had these, this 
some kind of a business with flax, obviously. Flax was used to make linen, like a material, but then they would take the stalks and form it into cords and into ropes and dye them red. Um, but I do wonder, like later on, as the Israelite armies were marching, if you know the story of Jericho, we're not gonna go into that, but marching in silence around the walls, I wonder if they looked up and saw that sign, that sign of Rahab's faith in the window, that red cord. I wonder if it reminded them of how they were rescued uh, in Egypt when they, when they had to paint the blood over the, the red blood of a sacrificial lamb over the doorposts of their home and everyone who stayed inside that home was saved when the angel of death passed over that night. I wonder if they were reminded. I, I don't know. Maybe that's just like some kind of symbolism that, that we see on this side, right? But it also reminds us, and it's a foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus, Jesus shed blood, pays for us. That we're saved, that our eternity is secure, that we are rescued from death by his shed blood for us. So the faith of Rahab recognized God's acts, recognized his supremacy. She put her faith to work. But what happened within the family of Rahab? How did Rahab the outsider become Rahab the insider? And why does that matter? Well, we have to turn to Joshua 6 to witness the end of Rahab's story. But, but before we get to chapter 6, there's this really interesting incident that happens. And it happens with Joshua. So Joshua, it, we're getting to the point where, you know, they're, they're needing to take that step and cross the river and go into the promised land. And Joshua goes one night on his own on a bit of a reconnaissance mission. And he is out uh, kind of, well, we're not sure what he's doing, but he's, it seems like he's checking things out. And, and maybe he's looking up at Jericho, wondering, God, how are we going to do this? And in front of him appears what the Bible calls like the commander of the Lord, like either the commander of the Lord's armies, an angel, um, appears before him. I mean, and he's, he's nervous. I would be too. And, uh, you know, he draws his sword and he asks this question like, are you for us or for our enemies? And the interesting thing is that the Lord's commander says, neither. And you're like, well, really? <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were picking sides. Neither. And, um, and then the, the commander of the Lord's armies actually tells Joshua how God is going to fight this battle for them. How God is going to do all the work. And how they're supposed to uh, line up in obedience to what God is asking them to do. Now, just side note... The name of Joshua actually is the same name as Jesus, right? Joshua uh, in Hebrew, that's the Hebrew form. Jesus is the Greek form, same name. And that name means Yahweh saves or delivers, Yahweh. I was reading, well, I have this book. It's called The Mission of God by Christopher Wright. If you like reading, uh, you know, Theology of the Redemption of God, Old Testament to New Testament, really good book. Um, but he says this, the battle and victory belong to God. And by putting our emphasis again on the mission of God, not on human mission, we preserve the right biblical perspective on this matter. For we need to be clear that in the Bible, the conflict with foreign gods is a conflict waged by God 
for us, not a conflict waged for us by God. So just, you know, I know there's a lot of controversy around the conquest and all that, if you've studied that, and you can go to Brad for deeper theological understanding on that. But listen, we all stand under Yahweh's judgment, and we can all turn to Yahweh, to God, for mercy, all of us. And this story is a very fundamental one. It's the fundamental element of understanding the Old Testament's contribution to the mission of God. This helps us understand Rahab's place in God's mission. I was, um, I came into, um, just through this study, a theologian became familiar with. Her name is Eva Beaker, and she's from Dallas Seminary, uh, but she currently is a hospital chaplain in Virginia. Um, she's, she's a really fascinating theologian and writer, and she says this concept that God is for God, which is actually what the, the commander of the Lord's armies was saying to Joshua there, that God is for God, it confounds the insider-outsider themes understood by the Israelites or by us, and it makes room for Rahab in the community of faith. So God was judging the wickedness, the unrepentance of, of centuries of the Canaanites as Jericho fell. The excavation of Jericho has revealed a curious thing. Instead of the walls falling in as evidence of, you know, uh, a conquering army like battering down the walls, um, the, the, the stones and the, and the walls fell outwards. And they, even today, um, they lay against the foundation of the lower walls. And it's identical to the scriptural account, right? Where God brings down the walls and the people go up into the city. Um, it's really interesting kind of archaeological discovery that, that, um, Jericho has been excavated a few times and they're finding these things out. It's kind of a side note. But Joshua 6, 22 and 23, picking up on our story, says this. Meanwhile, Joshua said to the two spies, keep your promise. Go to the prostitute's house and bring her out along with all her family. The men who had been the spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all the relatives who were with her. And they moved her, her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. So it's, it's, it's an interesting change here. It says they moved her near the camp of Israel. For a while they lived near or outside the camp. They were foreigners, and so they were on the fringes of the community. But they chose to follow the instructions and the worship of Yahweh. And Joshua closes this whole chapter of Rahab's story with this observation. Or the writer of Joshua, actually. So Joshua spared Rahab. This is in Joshua 6.25. So Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in their house. Because she had hidden the spies, Joshua sent to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. So she was camped nearby, and then in short order, it, the writer says this really interesting phrase, she lives among the Israelites. The outsider had become an insider. Rahab, triply marginalized. A Canaanite, a woman, a prostitute, someone excluded by respectable society, by her gender, by her culture, she's been brought into. She lives among the family of God. So how do we know to what extent Rahab joined the family? Well, it's, it's kind of like 
easy to figure out. You go to Matthew 1. You look at the genealogy and you see that Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth is one of your hidden figures coming up. Obed was the father of Jesse. Who was Jesse the father of? King David. Exactly. Rahab is the great-grandmother of King David. She was included in the family, in the line of King David. David. Which brings us back to our original question, why does Matthew include these hidden figures in his genealogy? Was it just, he just thought it was interesting? No, Matthew, the writer of Matthew, he's up to something. Matthew is communicating to a Jewish audience and he repeatedly makes the same point. I'm just going to reference a few of them. Maybe you'll know the stories, but if not, it's okay. If you're here just like checking out church and checking out Christianity, you might be like, what? There's prostitutes in the Bible? You've got to be kidding me. But let's not kid ourselves. Like, hers was just out in the open and it happened to be a label, right? Sexual sin. What a good night. Like, we walk with so many people that are caught in sexual sin. It's like mind-boggling sometimes. Uh, you know, just this past week, I spent hours with, with someone uh, just with her exposing and confessing the depths of what she has been involved in, in, in habitual, um, you know, sexual sin. It, it's a trap. This is a side note, side my notes. All I'm saying is like, even if you're new to church or like, what? Why does the Bible like so in your face with Rahab the harlot? Like, hey, it's us. It's the culture we live in. It has touched all of us in some way. And uh, we're just better at, like, keeping it under the carpet. So anyway, Matthew is up to something here. He is communicating to a Jewish audience, and he makes these points in different ways that are really quite amazing. When we see uh, from the very beginning, from uh, chapter 1, verse 1, what he's up to with his genealogy. Do you remember? Maybe you don't, if you don't know the story, but I'll tell you. When, when um, Jesus encounters a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, right? Non-Jewish Roman soldier. And the soldier wants him to heal his, his servant. And even says, Jesus, you can, you can heal him from a distance. You don't have to go there. And Jesus grants healing to the servant, but he says this, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Did you catch that? No one in Israel. A non-Jewish person. No one in Israel with such great faith. A Rahab in this Roman centurion. Matthew is filling his narrative with the faith of non-Jewish Gentiles. Again, Eva Beaker points out, Matthew wants his readers to accept cultural, cultural and racial outsiders, including the dreaded Canaanites, into this community of faith. And not by bloodline, but by belief. There's another place where Jesus meets an actual Canaanite woman. And the, the readers of Matthew might be, oh, well, look, you know, Old Testament Canaanite women included Tamar, Rahab. Oh, Jesus is talking to one. And this Canaanite woman confesses that Jesus is the son of David. 
um, she wants uh, healing for her daughter. And there's this really interesting exchange that Jesus has. I think he has it more for his disciples' sake than for the woman's sake, right? Because his disciples are the audience and maybe the religious leaders and they're all looking on. And Jesus commends this Canaanite woman's great faith and sends healing to her daughter. I mean, the Jews thought there shouldn't be any Canaanites. They're not supposed to be included in the people of God. And Matthew knows his audience, and he's addressing this question. Who can belong? Who can belong in God's family? Well, it reminds me of the Dr. Seuss story, the Sneetches. Am I, anyone know this story, the Sneetches? Oh, a few of you. This is awesome. It's such a good book. It's about two types of creatures. You know, they're separated by some have stars on their bellies and some don't. And, um, and so the star-bellied Sneetches just think they're the best. And, and they look down on Sneetches without stars. Now, the Sneetches without stars are, like, so depressed. And they walk around just feeling like, we're not included. And, and you know, we're, we're, we can't associate with the star-bellied Sneetches, so we're worthless. And until Sy Sylvester McMonkey McBean, I had to write that down because who can remember that? <laughs> Sylvester McMonkey McBean comes along with his star-on-star-off machine. Okay, those of you who know this story are laughing. But, um, you know, and he comes and, and he starts putting the Sneetches through this machine, and pretty soon, None, they get so mixed up, no one knows who started with stars and who didn't and who has stars on and stars off. And obviously the point of the story is to realize that dividing lines based on stars or on gender or race or our past or our socioeconomic status don't matter. Billy Graham said something that has become kind of famous and actually I think it is attributed to him. He said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's where we all come. Whether we think we're insiders or outsiders, whether we're raised in the church and a Christian for as long as you can remember, or if you're ashamed of your past or your moral failures or whatever it is, or maybe you just feel like you don't fit and don't measure up. You know, I don't know how long Rahab would have viewed herself through the lens of her past. I don't know. Because sometimes it's a process and the labels of our past, you know, we don't want them to define us, but they do. Um, two weeks ago, we were wrapping up Freedom Session, which is a course we do at um, our church. And Rob and I were part of that. And um, um, Freedom Session, we just spend months, literally months. We do the hard work. We walk through people and with people and ourselves. We identify um, places where we want to just be free of the bondage of whatever it is, addictions, thoughts, attitudes, anger, um, wh whatever it is, unforgiveness. And we, we, want, we want to walk free. We want, to, we want to leave those behind. And so at this last session or so, we set up this big wooden cross at the front and we had people actually take pieces of paper and write down the labels, the labels that they, that they carry, that they feel don't make them good enough or they can't measure up or they're outsiders or whatever it is or, or they just can't be forgiven. And, and they wrote down these labels and then, and then they actually take them to this cross and they nail them on there. And then... Um, leaders, uh, our leader came with um, a, a pot of red paint and a brush and stood in front of this cross while everyone is, is watching and just takes red paint and paints over every single label on the whole cross. 
And it's powerful. And some people say afterwards when they have to give their little story in front, they say that that evening was so meaningful for them that they actually saw the labels, the things that they carry nailed to the cross. This year, the labels that I nailed to the cross were critical, afraid to fail, perfectionist. These are the labels that make me afraid of not being seen as a righteous insider. But other years, I've nailed anger, unforgiveness, grief, as I've struggled as an outsider because I feel that I'm called by God to be a woman who leads and teaches. So we can feel both. We can feel insider, outsider, all at the same time sometimes. But insider, outsider labels shouldn't define us. It's our identity in Christ that brings freedom. And I wonder what labels Rahab accepted and wore as she joined into the family of God. Maybe they were labels like forgiven, loved, accepted, righteous were the labels that she uh, took on as a child, a daughter of the king. God's not impressed with our credentials or our lineage or our degrees or our accomplishments or our smarts or positions. It's our spiritual genealogy that matters, right? That we're children of God through what Jesus has done. We're all welcomed into God's family. And anyone, even the most unlikely, can believe. And this message is for you, it's for me, it's for the other. Uh, the other, um, uh, I don't know how long ago, I lose track of time, but I was on a flight to LA about a, a month ago, and I met a girl named Tatiana. I sat next to her on the airplane. Uh, a young woman, and just in talking to her, I could tell by her accent, I said, oh, where are you from? You sound like you're from Russia. And she was from Croatia. And so we got into this conversation. We talked for two hours. And I kept saying, Lord, just keep me from getting a headache because, <laughs> because my head has to be this way the whole time to talk to Tatiana. And, um, you know, she, we talked about faith. We talked about um, who Jesus is. We talked about the Bible. Um, she, she grew up in Croatia. She came to the States when she was 17, but she remembers when communism fell and she went and visited an Eastern Orthodox church for the first time and how, you know, she was in awe of that. And, and yet she told me she had no one in her whole circle of friends and family who was a believer. I was the first person that ever talked to her about Christianity. And she was on her way to Chile to hike the Patagonia Mountains. And um, I was like, oh, I'm on my way to a conference. <laughs> and um, so I mean, we talked about that. And, but really, I was just like, talk to her about Alpha. She's a programmer from Seattle. So I said, I'm sure there's, I couldn't get on Wi-Fi on the plane, but I'm like, I'm sure there's an Alpha course in Seattle at a church. Like, look it up. And, um, and I talked to her about, um, I talked to her about, how she could know about God, how she could pray to God. And I talked to her about how God reveals himself in, in creation. And before she got off the plane, um, she didn't accept Jesus. I think that I was a seed planter. But, you know, I got a chance to pray with her and, and just pray that God would reveal himself to her as she's hiking the mountains. And she's like, I would love to see those Patagonia mountains, you know, like from an airplane. You're hiking them. May, may God show, his, show himself to you. I said, maybe when you're up on those mountains, it'll just feel like the space between you and God is like 
thin, thinner or easier to, easier to access. And you'll see him and hear him. And I'm going to pray for you. And I have been praying for her. I have been praying for Tatiana regularly. I don't know if I'll ever see her again. Maybe in heaven. Maybe in eternity. But um, God's mission is this. To seek and to save the Rahabs, the Tatianas, those who might consider themselves outsiders living in their Jericho places among people who ignore or reject God. And does our heart break for that? Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. He hung out with outsiders. He got in trouble for it. People who may never walk inside the doors of this church. But this church is so great located, you know, just stick a sign on the sidewalk and, and, and make, make it known that this is a community of faith. Do things, the poor, the forgotten, the lonely, the sick, the offended, the offender, the messy, the lost, us, you know? Rahab witnessed the power and presence of God through Israel. She heard the message. So God brought her in because his salvation is for all people. What if the spies had rejected her and said, oh, she's a Canaanite, she's a woman, she's a prostitute. We can't possibly, you know, follow up on that. But Matthew sketches Rahab into his gospel to make it clear that the mission of God is for all people on the earth to be included in his family. So how, how, do, you, how do you identify yourself? What about for you personally? Are you a child of God? saved by the grace of Jesus alone or are you striving to maintain some kind of insider status based on how you look to others and the things that you don't want them to know or ever find out about you because your insider status is kind of important or do you continue to put labels on yourself that make you feel like an outsider an imposter you can't shake your past you can't shake the things that you're afraid to tell anybody about now. There's something I come back to over and over again. I think Rob told me this once, repeated it a bunch of times, and, and um, I just wanted to tell it to you because it erases all, it erases all of the insider, outsider, superiority, guilty, you know, um, pride, shame. It just flattens it all. And it's this statement by Tim Keller. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we could ever dare hope. Don't you think those could have been Rahab's words? Or yours or mine? I am more sinful and flawed in myself than I ever dared believe. I know that about me. Yet at the very same time, I am more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than I could ever dared hope. Let's remember this for ourselves, for those around us, and for those who have yet to join the family of faith. Would you pray with me as we close? The worship team's going to come. Jesus, thank you that you made a way that we who are uh, stand on your promises, God, and stand on the truth of your word and stand on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that paid the price for our sins, we are included in the family of God. And that door is wide open. That is not a family tree that has limits. 
God, your love stretches and reaches to the furthest person and it reaches into our hearts. God, help us accept that and live in the reality that we want to be on your mission, Lord, in this community, in this place, where you've placed us in our work, in our school, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. God, we want to be on your mission. Show us the unlikely, the marginalized, the lonely, the fearful, maybe the arrogant, the, 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 the person who's dismissive of you or just doesn't even know about you. Show us the Rahabs, the Tatianas, and the others in our world who need to hear about the marvelous name of our God. Thank you, Lord. Would you bless this congregation? Bless this church, Jericho Ridge, in your name, Jesus. May they be a community who shares your love and sees their neighborhood and the neighborhoods that they live in as a place of mission for your name's sake, Jesus, because you love us. In your name, amen.